Who was James Eads? And why did he find himself in such danger in the early hours of the 6th of June 1944? Turns out he was spearheading a mission of such danger that neither he nor his comrades expected to come out of it alive. Welcome to Season 3 of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I'm your host, Giles Milton, and today we're talking about one of the most brilliantly executed operations to take place on D-Day. In the last episode of Unknown History, we heard about how a daring band of British troops were dropped behind enemy lines in the hours before the D-Day beach landings. They were not alone in undertaking a mission of extraordinary danger. In the countryside that lay inland from Utah Beach, in the heart of rural Normandy, American paratroopers had been tasked with an operation of equal peril. James Eads and his young comrades from the 82nd Airborne Division were on a mission to capture the town of St. Mary Glees. It was an operation of such importance that failure was not an option. St. Mary Glees had to be captured if the seaborne landing on Utah Beach, due to begin at the crack of dawn, was to be a success. Eads and his men had just a few hours of darkness to achieve their goal. James Eads was a 21-year-old engineering student from Illinois, one of 13,000 American paratroopers to be dropped into Normandy shortly after midnight on the 6th of June. For those tasked with the specific goal of capturing St. Mary Glees, the jump had been terrifying. Stand up and hook up! That was the cry of the jump master. The red lights started flashing and the men got in line. Jesus Christ, said one of the 21 paratroopers on board. We don't get paid enough for this. Check equipment! But there was barely time. The red light flashed to green and the jump master pushed them out. 21, okay. 20, okay. 19, okay. Except that nothing was okay. The men were flying at 118 miles an hour and at a height of 750 feet. It was like jumping off the 80th floor of the Empire State Building, a terrifying but mercifully short jump that was made under heavy German gunfire. James Eads, Robert Snyder, Edward Krauss, all involved in that mission to capture St. Mary Glees lived through hell as they jumped from the plane. One of their comrades, Ken Russell, knew he was in deep trouble before he even left the aircraft. There was a fire in St. Mary Glees and it was lighting the night sky and turning the men into sharply defined silhouettes, perfect targets for the Germans. In those long seconds in the air, Russell had a bird's eye view of those who jumped before him. He saw one of his comrades hit by machine gun fire while he was still in the air. Unfortunately, the lad was armed with powerful gammon grenades and the resulting explosion was as harrowing as it was catastrophic. He was blown away instantly. I looked round and there was just an empty parachute coming down. Russell himself felt shells and bullets jerking at his chute as he drifted towards the ground. He once again looked down and got another shock. The heat of the fire was sucking the parachutists downwards and pulling them into the burning building. One of his friends was dragged into the heart of the inferno. I heard him scream. I saw him come down into the fire and the chute come down. He didn't scream any more. Ken Russell was caught in his own nightmare. He was heading straight for the church tower of St. Mary Glees, along with one of his comrades. I hit first and a couple of my suspension lines or maybe more went round the church steeple. He slid down the slate roof, which shredded both his clothing and skin until he came to a sudden halt, hanging by the fragile suspension lines, suspended and helpless like a fly in a web. 
he reached for his trench knife, cut the parachute risers and tumbled headlong into the street below. He was fortunate not to break a bone. Fellow paratrooper James Eads also found himself in a nightmare. Scarcely had he landed in a heap of cow manure when he glimpsed three soldiers running towards him. I could see the coal bucket style helmet and thought, oh hell. But his intensive training kicked in. He reached for his pistol, which was already loaded with a round in the chamber and seven in the clip. I thumbed back the hammer and started firing. He was a good shot and the Germans were easy targets. The third man fell with my eighth round right at my feet. The parachutist dropped into St Mary Glees had undergone a baptism of fire in the first few minutes of landing. But this was just the beginning. They now had to capture the town from the German forces, an extremely hazardous operation in any circumstances, but even more difficult when undertaken at night. One of the first to venture into the town was Ronald Snyder, a plucky 20-year-old sergeant whose unit had spearheaded the invasions of both Sicily and Salerno. This, his third combat jump, had been the worst. He'd fallen out of the plane head first and the jolt of the opening chute had sent a violent jerk through his body. Vast traces lit the sky like silver confetti, he said, an exploding firework display that might have been exhilarating had it not been so uncomfortably close. He was still gaining speed when he hit the ground and slammed into a cow pasture like a sack of cement. His intense training now reaped dividends. He picked himself up, brushed off the mud and began looking around for his comrades. He eventually managed to assemble a small group and then led them through the shadows towards the outskirts of St Mary Glees. We moved quickly, filing past the darkened houses that lined the street named Chef Dupont. Enemy vehicles were roaring by on the main road ahead and suddenly one truck braked to a stop and troops from the back began firing wildly down the street. Snyder split his men into two, ordering one group to cover the truck while he led the others down a connecting street so as to attack from a more secure position. He then shouted the order to shoot and the men directed all of their fire and drove the Germans out of town in a hail of bullets. He and his band felt as if they were engaged in a lonely battle for St Mary Glees, but other parachutists were also converging on the town. Not for nothing were these men known as the elite. James Eads and a fellow paratrooper were amongst those who were heading for the centre of St Mary Glees, vowing that nothing would stop them from accomplishing their mission. At one point, they heard the stomp of hobnail boots rounding a curve in the road. Eads reached for his gun and started firing short bursts at the last man, then the second. All three fell. Our surprise was complete. Surprise had always been the key element in the Americans' favour, and Eads and his comrades used it to deadly effect in those early morning hours, playing a vicious game of guerrilla warfare. Although the situation on the ground was chaotic, they had but one goal, to arrest the little French town from its German occupiers. On approaching the main square, Eads noticed one paratrooper hanging from the spire of the church. This was John Steele, whose D-Day exploits would later be played by the actor Red Buttons in the film The Longest Day. As the two men crouched in the shadows, a German troop carrier roared into sight and advanced towards them at speed. Eads was about to start firing when I heard my buddy grunt and saw him fall. He'd been hit, fatally so, bringing their two-man spectacular to a deadly close. Eads was now alone, with 600 rounds of ammunition and a keen will to survive. He'd landed just 90 minutes earlier, yet those minutes had already carried him to hell and back. As he sidled across the square looking for comrades, he spied the hiding place of four German soldiers. 
He crept up and double-checked that his Tommy gun was fully loaded before shooting them all down. He'd rapidly learned to appreciate that gun. It's just like a garden hose. You aim it in the general direction of your target, hold on the trigger and wave it back and forth. Some ammunition was invariably wasted, but you can't hardly miss hitting with some of them. Soon after, Eads teamed up with a few other paratroopers. These beleaguered men now tried to take stock of their situation, but with no working radio, it was impossible to get any clarity. St Mary's was in a state of utter confusion, with no one in control and no one knowing what to do next. But help was at hand. One of the commanders of the 82nd Airborne was Lieutenant Colonel Edward Cannonball Krauss, a veteran survivor of the invasion of Sicily. Krauss had a fearsome reputation among all who served under him. With his cropped hair and crumpled fatigues, he looked every inch the professional soldier. Yet there was something unsettling about the blank expression and detached gaze. Few liked him and most feared him. One said he was a psycho who'd kill anything that stood in his way. Yet he trained his men to within a whisker of their lives, turning them into a hardened force of elite fighters. On the previous evening, he'd gathered them together at the airbase in southern England and delivered an electrifying call to arms, whipping a tattered American flag from his pocket as if he were a magician with a box of tricks. This was the first American flag to fly over Sicily, he said, and the first American flag to be raised over Naples. And tomorrow morning, I will be sitting in the mayor's office in St. Mary's, and this flag will be flying over that office. Few doubted that he meant it. Now, while it was still dark, he gathered a force of 200 paratroopers and prepared to lead them into the town. Unaware that some of his troops were already fighting their way through the streets, he sent an advance guard to scout the way ahead. Among this guard was Bill Tucker, who found the experience nerve-wracking. It was suddenly very quiet, and I felt very strange. It seemed as if something was moving very close to me, and I swung my gun around, but didn't see anything until I looked above me. A dead parachutist was hanging from the branches. He'd been shot and was swaying back and forth like a heavy human pendulum. Edward Krause's men swept through St Mary's in a blaze of gunfire, achieving their goal of capturing and securing the place in less than an hour. They took 30 prisoners and killed a handful more, but most of the Germans had already fled. Krauss himself headed straight to the town hall, whipped out the American flag from his haversack and hoisted it onto the flagpole. He then radioed a message through to Colonel William Ekman, commander of the 505 Parachute Infantry Regiment. I have secured St Mary's, he said. This was true enough, but he made it sound as if he'd achieved it single-handed. In reality, it was teamwork that enabled the town to be captured so quickly. Lieutenant Colonel Krauss knew that the Germans were certain to launch a counterattack within hours. He also knew that he must hold the town until reinforcements arrived from Utah Beach. Winning St Mary's was only half the battle. Holding it would prove even more difficult. This week's Unknown History Snippet is about German intelligence and counterintelligence. What did the Germans know? Were they spying on the Allies? Did they realise that the invasion was coming? One of the key individuals was Colonel Helmut Meyer, who was in charge of counterintelligence for the 15th Army. 
He'd received a most tantalising tip-off from Berlin's military intelligence service, revealing that the Allies were intending to use the BBC to broadcast a general but coded announcement to the French resistance, informing it of the forthcoming invasion. This message was to be the opening lines of a poem by the French writer Paul Verlaine. The first line would be transmitted exactly a week before the invasion. The second would signal that the Allied landings were imminent. The first excerpt of the Verlaine poem was picked up by one of Mayer's intelligence officers at 9.20pm on Thursday the 1st of June. The second came at 9.33pm on Monday the 5th of June. It was a stunning breakthrough, one that Mayer had been awaiting for months. He now knew that the invasion troops would be landing within hours. This was such priceless intelligence that he took it immediately to the 15th Army's Chief of Staff. He flashed a general alert to the 15th Army headquarters. From here, it was transmitted to Army Group B, from where, in a very short space of time, it arrived at Hitler's headquarters in Bavaria, where it fell into the hands of General Alfred Jodl, the Chief of Operations Staff. And this is where it stopped. General Jodl was in a position to order a general alert. He could have sent a warning to every command post in northern France. But he didn't trust Mayer's intelligence. Over the past weeks, there'd been too many false alarms. He therefore declined to forward the warning to the very army charged with defending the Normandy coastline. If they'd known, they could have moved their troops to the beaches. They could have got prepared. They could have deployed their panzer divisions. Instead, most were asleep when the Allied troops began to land. For the Germans, it was a catastrophic mistake. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unknown History. In the next episode, we'll be meeting a small band of hardened fighters who are charged with capturing one of the most formidable German batteries on the Normandy coast. <laughs>